in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Thanks be to God. Wonderful. So this is the encounter we're looking at uh, this morning. Now, as I said, last week, if you remember, we began by Jesus calling his first disciples. He was calling almost like his, his crack ministry team, although at the very start they were, uh, you might say they were rough diamonds. Um, and the next three years was their boot camp, I suppose you could call it. But these were the guys who were going to accompany him learn from him, be challenged by him, and sent out on mission for him. Three years later, following Pentecost, they'd be going solo out into the world. The Holy Spirit would come upon them. He would transform them. He would empower them to be his witnesses. And through them, they would undertake this task of taking the gospel, the message of him, to the nations, to the ends of the world. And in fact, what we've got in John's gospel is 60 years later, here's John looking back now as an old man. He's an old man at this point, 60 years later, wanting to say something very specific about Jesus. You know, the other three gospel writers had already written theirs, but he didn't simply want to repeat what they had said. In fact, we know why John wrote his gospel, because helpfully, and it's always useful, isn't it? Helpfully, he tells us. In chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he writes this at the end of his book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the reason he wrote, and he wrote it for us. It was to get people, people just like you, just like me, to believe that Jesus was exactly who he said he was and that it would change our lives as a result. That's why John wrote. In fact, literally, he wrote to fulfill something which he may have, written, uh, may have read, in fact, from the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote in one of his letters to the Corinthian church, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old, well, that's gone. The new has arrived. And so, as we go through these subsequent weeks, as Jesus begins now performing these incredible miracles in front of people, he's telling us this is because something new is happening. There's a change that's taking place here that is not just going to change for them in the here and now, but that is radically going to alter the whole of history from this point. And I, Jesus, I am that change. This is me doing this. In fact, when we look at Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, that's exactly the reason that they're there. They're not there just to tickle our fancy. They're not there just to be some amazing event that takes place that we're meant to go, oh, isn't that amazing and incredible? They're there because they're meant to say something different's going on here. You need to sit up and take notice of this. This guy is different. He's changing things. He's new, and he's making all things new at the same time. I mean, take, the, take this first one following the calling of his disciples. Uh, you think about the life of Jesus, and you think about what the Bible, how the Bible can sometimes feel. You know, very grand. God's glory is amazing thing happens. The creation of the whole universe and the world and God's control of all of it. We saw some of that in our series in the book of Job just recently. And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus... Amazingly, what we also get is the most human of experiences. Many experiences that just relate to us where we are. I mean, how much more real to life can you get than this encounter of a mother and her son attending a wedding with friends and with wine that runs out? I mean, how much more practical could you possibly get than a situation like that? I mean, I, I've attended a fair few weddings in my time, but that, that never has, in fact, happened. I know many of you know that my track record, because uh, I've shared it with weddings, is not that great. I've told you before about the time that I got lost on the way to a friend's wedding. I was meant to be praying at their wedding. They asked me to do so. Left an hour earlier than I needed to. Days before sat-nav got lost on the way, couldn't find the church. It was terrible, I tell you, going backwards and forwards, round the roundabouts, trying to work out where on earth this church was that I was supposed to be at. Finally found it with five minutes to spare and couldn't find a parking spot. It's just the way it happens, isn't it? Dumped the car somewhere up the road, ran down the road in my suit, 
um, on a warm summer's day and met the bride at the door. That's not what you're supposed to do, is it really? And it's not the only time something like this has happened. Uh, there's another wedding I went to where I was supposed to be at the, um, I went up the night before, just, uh, just I guess to make sure, um, but I was invited to the wedding rehearsal. Accident on the road, another road at Roadworks, missed the wedding rehearsal, or at least came in right at the very end of it. I've not got the best track record of weddings. Um, I think the moral of the story is don't ask me to pray at them. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's just practical circumstances, isn't it? Things sometimes go wrong. And this is the way that we have to live our lives. It's very human. I mean, if you've ever been involved in arranging or helping to arrange a wedding, you'll know behind the scenes that things can get pretty stressful, um, pretty anxious, even fraught at times. And it's at this scene of one of the most basic of human experiences, a wedding that Jesus performs his first sign that he is the Messiah and that things are about to change. At a wedding, the old has gone and the new has come. And here's what we read as we started the passage. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, as mothers I'm sure sometimes do, they have no more wine, Jesus. <laughs> Three headings this morning, and the first is this, number one, a mother's request. Now, if you were to attend a wedding in Jesus' time, they were pretty labor-intensive affairs. I mean, we think today that arranging one day of celebrations can be quite a challenge. In their day, try arranging a week-long celebration because that's what they did. It was a week-long celebration when people got married. I mean, can you imagine the catering for starters? How do you begin to plan for seven days' worth of feasting and arranging practical uh, circumstances to make sure your guests are all happy? If there's one area that things are going to go wrong, surely it's something to do with that. And of course, that's exactly what happens. You know, there might be a, a, a weddings today, an issue with the, the bridesmaid's dress or something. The best man might forget he's, who he's supposed to toast among the ceremony. But gosh, plan a week's worth of catering. That's the most likely area where something's going to go wrong. And I say go wrong. For us, we might be a little bit embarrassed by it and by what happens in this story. For them, it was even more important that they got it right. Um, in the culture, it was the groom's responsibility, particular responsibility, to arrange and pay for the catering. It fell under his remit to get all the right amounts correct. And, of course, to get the wine amounts correct for the guests attending as well. To, to get it wrong in the culture would have brought shame on the family. It would have been deeply embarrassing. 
And where, in, in, where, in, on, on, where would you not want to bring shame upon the family? Well, of course, it's a family wedding. It's not the place you want to be shown up in front of all of your community and friends. Hence, you've got Mary, Jesus' mother, who was obviously in some way involved in behind the scenes with all of this. He comes to him to highlight the problem at hand. They have no more wine. Now, I don't know what Mary's expectations were when she went to Jesus. It's not really clear. There are some... Uh, apocryphal stories, and the word apocryphal meaning sort of of doubtful authenticity outside of the canon of Scripture stories. It's what you might have heard of the apocrypha um, uh, that is is sometimes uh, mentioned uh, in Christian circles, but it's basically books that fall outside of the canon of Scripture because they can't be authenticated in the same way as Scripture itself. And there were some stories of Jesus performing miracles in his younger years, but, you know, the Bible doesn't give any indication that any of that has taken place to this point. There is no indication of that. So, so what happens next is the first. It's his first sign performed that there's something new about to take place. Even the mother of Jesus, even Mary, is... She's not expecting, we don't think, what's about to happen next. You know, she would have known, obviously, that he was no ordinary son. She'd been told that right from the the very start. Ever since an angel, Gabriel, had appeared to her and told her that very fact that he was going to be the son of God, the savior of the world, she would have known he wasn't any ordinary son. But you know what? I don't think even she was expecting quite what happened. Jesus had demonstrated great wisdom in his early years as a boy outside of the temple. He amazed the teachers of the law with his understanding and questions. But she had not yet, as far as we know, seen his power. It's more likely that probably Mary is simply relying upon Jesus his wisdom and resourcefulness. You know, we think she is now a widow. Joseph, we think, has passed away. Mary likely relied on her son for help. Remember, he was a carpenter, practical, resourceful. He knew what's what when it came to problem solving. The amount of times he probably looked at kitchen cabinets, at a bodge job someone had done and said, aha, no, you've just got to do this and I'll sort it out for you. He was probably a very resourceful guy anyway, but of course full of wisdom as well. And so what does Mary do? Well, she comes to her son as any worried mum might do and tells him that something is wrong. Sort of probably hoping that he's going to step forward and say, don't, don't, don't worry, mum, don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll just go and sort it for you. I'll go and sort out the problem. You know, it's that situation where you don't quite ask someone, but you say the problem and you just hope that they're going to catch on. <laughs> it's very human. Which is why what he does next is so extraordinary. The new is coming and it's just about to begin. Here's a quick thought, though, before we get to our next heading. Mary goes to Jesus, 
and tells him the problem, kind of hoping that he would do something about it. Have you ever done a Mary with Jesus? Have you ever, you know, you've got a problem and you pray about it. You know, maybe your family is in difficulty. Maybe your, your job has gone south. Maybe uh, you're worried about something that's happening this coming week. And, and you pray and you kind of hint or, or hope that Jesus might do something to help. And you may even have a fairly clear expectation in your own mind as to what you think he should do. Perhaps as Mary did. Jesus, can you go and source some more wine, perhaps? Would you, son, oh, go on, just go and sort it out. Would you help? Have you ever done a Mary? Because sometimes we've got to be prepared in our prayers when we come to Jesus for him to do something completely different than what we might think. Often our bar, because we're human, is set quite low, isn't it? We can sometimes pray about things thinking, well, maybe he'll do something. Jesus' bar is set very, very high. And he looks on us with love. The amount of people that, that I know, <laughs> that God has surprised them, <laughs> completely surprised them when they've prayed for something or prayed about something, it leads me to believe that often, often, we expect too little of Jesus. We expect too little of him. Or, or we come to him thinking we know how things should turn out and really we're asking him to just bless our plans. We often can do that when God can have something very different in mind for us. And just maybe, just maybe, it'll be beyond what we ever thought was possible. First, we get a mother's request. Second, we see it's the Son of God, not truly her Son, who responds. Because as this new era dawns at a wedding in a little place in Can called Cana in Galilee, this is the moment where Jesus will begin to change everything. And we realize, and Mary realizes along the way, that everything's going to change for her as well. Now, to us, what Jesus says, it might sound a bit rude. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, calling your own mum woman usually doesn't go down very well. Uh, we'd get in trouble if we did that today. But be reassured, it's more a translation thing than a, than a rudeness thing. In the culture, there would be no disrespect in calling his mum woman. It's basically saying lady or even dear lady. That would be the, the kind of equivalent for us. It's not disrespectful, but at the same time, I suppose you could say, it's not really the warm and affectionate response you might expect of a loving son towards her mum who's got a problem that she needs a solution for. I mean, surely we think Jesus should always be all warm and lovely and 
and, and, uh, and fuzzy and, and nice towards us and all these kinds of things. That's how a lot of people imagines Jesus. Jesus meek and mild. Uh, no crying he made. Wouldn't say boo to a goose, not least his mum. That's the way he's sometimes portrayed out in the world, in fact. As if he's got no authority. As if there's nothing more to him than what you just see in front of you like any other person. That's how a lot of people imagine Jesus. You know, sometimes new worship songs come out and they make Jesus very mushy. Sometimes people make Jesus out to be more like a, a mate who you'd uh, go down the pub with or, or a lover who wraps a warm embrace around you. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a place for love and affection in relationship with Jesus. The church is portrayed as his bride, glorious, gloriously awaiting him as their as, as, as the husband on their wedding day. There's a deep affection Jesus has for his church. But none of those things, none of them, not even the bonds of deep family, knew to Jesus from being the kind of king of kings, the lord of lords, the one fully in control of his own path and destiny. He says to his mom, my dear lady... Why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. Think from Mary's perspective for a minute. What must she feel? She, she's the one who's birthed Jesus, cared for him, nurtured him, taught him, you know, perhaps taken him to school, packed his lunchbox, <laughs> hugged him when he had fallen over and grazed his knee. All of those very motherly things that mums do. But she was wise enough to know that a time was coming where even she would have to take second place in his life. Her own son would one day have to enter the purpose for which he came in the first place. Even she, Mary, would have to subordinate herself to the king. It just so happened that the king was her son. Why do you involve me, he says. My time has not yet Come. What he's saying to Mary is, I love you, but I have to do what I'm here to do. I have to live by the time scales that are set for me. I have to fulfill the purpose for which I came. You know, mums talk about how difficult it can be for children to fly the nest. Well, Jesus is no ordinary child. Gabriel told her that one day a sword would pierce her soul. And here's the contrast between Mary and her son, the Son of God. Mary is worried about wine at a wedding. Jesus turns it around, and at the very same moment, he's anticipating the cross. That's where his mind has gone. 
the hour, the time scale set in place by his heavenly Father. Mary wants the wedding to run smoothly. Jesus has the glorification of the universe in mind. That's the contrast that's going on here. He's the Son of God. The one that John, at the very start of his gospel, said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This is who Jesus is, he's saying. And things are about to change. And it's to her sheer credit that even as this truth hits home, she doesn't argue, does she? She doesn't say anything more to Jesus. She understands what's going on here, at least to some degree. You get the feeling she's prepared for this moment. But what she does do is a model for the way we should respond to. How we should see him. Because she turns around and she displays what you could only describe as a simple, contented faith that whatever Jesus may do in response, it'll be the right thing to do. She, she says to the servants, she only speaks to them following this point, she says, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. I mean, what a learning point that is for us, yeah? What a learning point. We sometimes cry out to God for something, wanting what we desire. But like Mary, we have to live content with what he does in response. Particularly when he chooses to do something completely and utterly different. Because that's faith, isn't it? That, that is what faith really at its core is all about. Taking God at his word and trusting it. Life can be complicated, but faith itself, it isn't really. It, it's why a child can understand the gospel. Even at age seven, you know, I knew enough about Jesus. Well, well, for me, it was because I knew I didn't want to go to hell. That was kind of my reasoning about it all. But, but in fact, talking of mums, it was my mum who helped me make a childlike profession of faith as she explained things to me, even at, even at a young age. I don't think I fully grasped the implications of that until I was about 14 when I, when I would say I came to saving faith in Jesus. But I've known people for whom it's been even younger than that. Uh, a baptism service we had at my last church, there was, I remember, someone who was very confident that they became a Christian when they were four years old. They understood enough at that age, not through christening or because their parents believed, but they understood enough themselves to have a simple childlike faith in Jesus. Even a child can grasp these things and believe. Life can be complicated, but faith really isn't. What we often wrestle with, isn't it, is the implications of faith for our life. Because when we're calling people to trust in Jesus, to take him at his word and act upon it, we're also calling people to allow him to do as he would do in our lives as well. 
You know, we have faith, but we let him be in control. He's his own master, loves us dearly, at the same time as being the Son of God, worthy of our worship and love in response to all he's done for us. Which is what this final heading is all about. It's all, it's all thoroughly positive. We've had a mother, mother's request, the Son of God's response, but finally we get to witness the Messiah's sign, where this encounter is leading. Jesus proceeds with what he is going to do next. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. You know, any coincidence that as he ushers in this new way of doing things, this new kingdom, he uses religious ceremonial washing jars filled to the brim with water. What's the point? What's the sign? Well, there's the way that the ceremonial washing, the cleansing from sin is going to change. There's something different going on here. The old is gone, the new has come. It's at least part of the sign. Fill the jars with water, he says. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master takes the wine, tastes it, unaware of what is to come, but clearly impressed. He pulls the bridegroom aside and says to him, this is remarkable. Everyone brings out the choice wine earlier on, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Sorry, are we okay in the middle? Please, please, yes. Yeah, please do. Um, John, are you able to... Yeah. Sorry, we, we may just need to yeah, make some space here. Okay, I'll, I'll carry on as, as you... Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, now, it, it doesn't take too much of a leap to know what... Jesus is doing here. You know, he, he takes this religious ceremonial washing pots, he fills them with water and, and, and turns it into wine. In one action, he says that those old ways of doing things are being totally transformed, fulfilled by the man who makes the miracle happen. Uh, all, all of that that's bound up in it, the temple, law, sacrifice, all that's portrayed in six, the six jars. You know, six is the number of being incomplete in the Bible, seven being the number of completion, it's all pointing towards a new reality. It's a profound symbol of what he's there to do, and it's at a wedding because the wine has run out. Surprise number one. Surprise number two, the new wine is better than anything that has ever been served before. Uh, there was a story that hit the news um, a few years back about a group of diners who went to uh, a restaurant in Manchester and as part of their meal they ordered a, a bottle of wine and a pretty decent bottle of wine too. Um, 
Uh, now, I know very little about wine myself, I will admit, but the bottle they ordered cost £260, so a fairly decent bottle of wine, I would assume. But the manager that day, who had been drafted in from another branch of the restaurant chain, went back into the storeroom and accidentally picked up the wrong bottle of wine. The bottle he brought out and proceeded to serve to the guest didn't cost £260, it cost £4,500. In fact, the error was only discovered when the diners, having unsurprisingly really enjoyed their, what they thought, £260 bottle of wine, decided to order another. Obviously, had a healthy budget for the evening. It was only then that the manager suddenly realized the rather expensive mistake he had made. And this is the point, you know, the diners were expecting something reasonably good, fairly good, but received something quite spectacular, if you like that kind of thing. And before you wonder, no, they didn't get charged for it. Uh, the restaurant smiled it off, they laughed about it, four and a half thousand pounds, but there you go. Um, and in fact, the, the, the man, um, the man who, um, uh, who said it said, well, we just, we just had to say, well, it's yours. <laughs> we've, we've served it now. That's it. It's gone. Here's the point. What Jesus is about to do in the next three years of his life is something far better, far greater, far more awesome and powerful than anything that had ever been seen before. And it began at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. Amazing. So what are we supposed to do with it? What are we supposed to do with this encounter? Verse 11 gives us an indication. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Yet only the servants and the disciples, and we assume Mary, knew what had happened that day. And it opened their eyes to who Jesus truly was. And this was just the beginning. What more they should, should they expect? in the years to come? What more should they do in response? Three things that we're to do in response from our passage this morning. The first is quite simple. We're to see and believe. Simple. That that's the purpose of John's gospel. That's the purpose of any sign of God. Jesus was making all things new. And what that means is that he can make all people new. Even me and you. What was before the old can truly become new. If he can turn tap water into the most delectable of wines, what is he going to do in your life and mine? We're to see and believe. Uh, number two, we're to anticipate what's to come, the glories to come. It says this is just the first signs which revealed his glory. What was the purpose of it? 
The best is yet to come. The cross where he dies, the tomb where he's raised, it's all still in the future. None of those at the wedding bar Jesus could see that. But it didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. Of course it was. The miracle just pointed towards that. The one that truly would make all the difference for us. And thirdly, we're to share and to see God save. Because let's face it, at the end of the day, we're not the ones doing the saving, are we? We're just not. We're not powerful to do that. We're not the one who's, who's sacrificed themselves on other people's behalf. Only God has done that. And only He is the one by His Spirit who's able to save. He calls us to share, though, in order that He might save. Because it's by the hearing of the Word of God that people come to know Jesus and are challenged by Him. You know, we've lived through this very weird and strange period of time uh, over the past months where possibly, you know, it's all got a bit inward looking. There's an element of rightness. There's been an element of rightness about that. Um, but it's been very isolating and uh, there's a lot of thought about and concern for ourselves and for others too. But God's call in our lives will, will, will never be for that to remain because the gospel is to go out. It's to be shared. It's to be celebrated. And it must be shared because the gospel really does work. It's not just some truth to believe, but a reality to be expressed and lived and trusted. It's a foundation for our lives that we must then build upon through his word. It's the foundation that this church needs to be built upon as we look to the future. The old has gone, the new has come. And with Jesus, the best is always still to come. He's not finished with us yet. And so as we continue through this series and see the miracles of God, let's recognize that about him. That this is all a process, a learning journey to get us to see the glory of God, to be challenged by it, but not just to be challenged, to decide even more to live for him and share him and grow with him as he calls us forwards into the plans he has for us. So let's pray and ask him to do that work amongst us now, to fill us afresh with what he's asking us to do in response. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are not bound by any of our time frames, what we might want you to do. But you've got a plan and a purpose which you have set in all the great and glorious wisdom that you have for this world. We thank you that in your wisdom, you sent Jesus. You came as God in flesh 
to not just be a savior, but to show us your purpose and plan in flesh and blood in front of us. To give us signs of your great glory, which is beyond anything we can imagine, that we can just taste in the here and now, and that one day we will see fully when we are with you face to face. But we pray, Father God, that as we see these signs and miracles, as we read of these encounters that people have with you, that we too would have that similar encounter that draws us closer to your heart and your purposes for our lives, for our church, Lord God, for this community, for this nation. We pray and ask, Lord God, that you would be so at work by your Spirit that we would be stirred to love you more, to trust you more, and to entrust our lives to you more, that your purpose would prevail for us. And Lord, we pray that as we seek to share you with others, that you would enable us with all the wisdom we can have to share you in ways that are right and honoring and hope-filling and wonderful and glorious and that provoke people to look at you afresh. So help us, we pray, in that task. And in your name we ask these things. Amen. Amen.